Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. This episode, we're joined by Brian Jones, the Director of Medical Workforce Solutions, who has built a career around workforce management. Brian is currently linked up with the SARD tech team to create team job planning, SARD's newest software system. Thank you very much for joining us, but we'd love to hear a little bit about you and your origin story. Right. Okay. Um... I'm a medical staffing manager, medical HR manager by trade. Um, I've been working exclusively with doctors since 1994. Used to recruit registrars and senior registrars in the Northwest and then um, worked for 12 years at Central Manchester Trust as a medical staffing manager. Um, and then after that, I sort of went solo, really. I, I did a sort of regional project on hospital at night for mental health and then set up my own limited company um, in 2007, I think. Uh, and, and over the course of the last 15 years, I've been working with a number of trusts around um, sort of medical HR uh, issues, either sort of providing operational management to the function. Um, but certainly in the last 10 years, um, been much more focused around um, workforce planning for consultants and other senior doctors, you know, and, and really sort of the, the, the big sort of piece of my work over the last 10 years, probably worked with about 20 trusts, um, has been around job planning. Mm. And, and over the last three years, um, I had a bit more of a focus around team job planning. So I'm looking at demand models for clinical teams and trying to link that into individual job planning or capacity planning and, and understand what the gap is between demand on senior clinical time and um, the, the amount of resource that's available within, within each specialty within a particular trust. So you said you started in medical HR in Manchester. Was it? Mm-hmm. That's right. How did, how did you end up there? I, I, I mean, I sort of, for personal reasons, I'm, I relocated from Nottingham to Manchester. Right. Um, my partner at the time got a job at Dorma, who make curtains and bedding and that sort of thing. So oh, I came did. with her, and uh, you know, I was I was due to do a HR postgrad in Doncaster. You know, I'm a I'm a law graduate and decided wanted to get into HR. Came to Manchester, uh, managed to get onto the postgrad there. Um, worked for a civil service organization, property services agency. They used to build, or they did all the project management around building of, you know, sort of governmental sort of building courthouses, for example. Um, Worked in the HR team there, recording sickness. Right. You know, from a from paper onto a spreadsheet, basically for the for the workforce, <laughs> and then a job a job came up at the regional health authority um, for somebody to do recruitment training grade recruitment, and I went for it, got the job so for about nine months, got to know quite a few people across the northwest. You know, I was working mainly with recruiting consultants across the northwest, and. And then a job came up at Central Manchester for a medical HR manager. So it sort of it was never my intention to do medical HR, but I sort of fell into it. It's quite niche. Yeah, you, you and me both, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's interesting. I think because my my view compared to sort of general HR in the in the NHS is that there's a lot of change across the medical workforce. There's always a new set of terms and conditions of service. Has been probably at least 10 changes since 1994 
and I've followed that journey through. You know, con- initially I was involved, was predominantly involved in the controls on junior doctors' hours and making sure that junior doctors were compliant in relation to the junior doctors' hours arrangements, and they've changed. Mm. They've had a couple of iterations over the last twenty years. Um, we were successful in winning an, an award at the. I think it was in that in those days it was called the sort of NHS HR sort of confed. I think it's now NHS confed, but we, we won a prize for the work that we did around junior doctors' hours. I've always been interested in data, really, which is probably why I ended up moving into more of a sort of workforce planning role. Mm. Yeah, I just fell into it. There was there was a point in time where I, I felt like I couldn't hack it actually after a couple of years at Central Manchester. Why was it? I think I think I found it quite challenging to deal with the workforce. I think when you first move into a medical HR role and you start dealing with consultants and junior doctors day to day, it's quite challenging, mm. and and you're a bit in awe of them. You know, they're sort of highly educated and one of the sort of I don't know what the word is, but um, it, it's one of the sort of prime sort of uh, occupations. People aspire to be doctors or dentists or, God forbid, accountants maybe, but um, or lawyers. And I suppose I found I found it quite a challenge really to build up some rapport. Yeah. And I was quite young and, and trying to understand what makes them tick. Mm. Not really truly understanding what happens in a hospital as well. And I think for those first two or three years, I didn't didn't really get close to the business. So if you don't understand what they're doing on the ground, why they're doing it, there's a sort of a, there's a disconnect, I think. And you've got, you've gone in quite deep into what they actually do, like since we, cause we will get onto this, but we've been working on this team job planning application together. But you, one of the real benefits of that relationship is that you seem to have a very deep knowledge of actually what it is they're doing and the different disciplines and the specialties and yeah. how they actually operate literally. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that comes with time and experience, but also I remember we used to have speakers that used to come in and, and provide training to the sort of HR function, and there were people from outside of the NHS. I remember there was one chap came in and um, he worked for Kellogg's, and he, it was sort of quite an inspirational hour, really, because the, the, the first thing he said was, you know, understand the business, and he understood all four corners of the cereal-making business. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he said, you need to get out into, into the business. You need to ask the people that you work with whether you can come and shadow them, watch what they do. And I suppose that I think that's one of the sort of the core things, I think, for any HR specialist is that you, you really need to understand the business and not just think about, I need to recruit a bum into that seat mm. and I need to induct them and make sure that they know what they're required to do, or at least if all we would do is re- recruit them induct them and make sure they're on the payroll mm. and then deal with problems as and when they came about in terms of performance or capability or, or, or whatever, or issues that the doctors were having. Um, but really didn't understand the core business, which was about patients, hundred percent about patients. So um, I suppose over time I, I developed that. I must admit, I, you know, after a couple of years, I, I wasn't sure whether it was for me. I, 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 I stayed, I kept my hand in, but I went part-time and pursued a, an interest in music. Mm-hmm. Um, worked for a, um, a music promotions company in Manchester that um, are still going strong and have got a really sizable reputation, not just in the city, but nationally and globally. 
Um, so I went off and did that for a bit. And, you know, the doctors were saying, oh, you've gone off to, to do music. Why, why aren't you with us full time anymore? And and I used to sort of joke, well, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the same business, really. It's about saving, saving lives. But I think music gets in a bit earlier than the medical profession they come in at the, they come in at the, the back end of it but but uh people that, that are interested in music i think it helps them in terms of the lifestyle and connection with other people is a oh, yeah. does does save lives i think so and i carried on doing that for 12 years alongside my sort of my paid job because music didn't really pay um but it was a passion that i had i only really gave that up once the limited company was up and running and work was coming in and I sort of, I think I began to appreciate that the core set of skills that um, would offer me a, a reasonable sort of livelihood going forward. And I enjoyed it at that point. My, it's the rapport was a lot easier. Mm. It was a lot easier to get people into the room. I, I understood how doctors sort of ticked, how they worked. So I th- you know, I think since then, probably count on one hand the the number of difficult individuals that I was not able to to connect with. But in the end I do mm. sort of have the confidence now to be able to yeah. sort of chase them down and explain why I'm here and, wh- and why I can help them. Yeah. Particularly in the area of sort of job plan and HR, I think there's a lot of suspicion that it's um that it's big brother, that it's, you know, that you're coming in to check compliance against these things and are you really on a golf course on Friday? And yeah, you know, there's a lot of suspicion around it. So I guess that's a big hurdle to overcome, is it? I think, I think, yeah, it is. And and then on the other, on the other flip side, I don't think it is. I, I think I might have never subscribed to the idea that doctors are on the golf course. I think one of the issues around workforce planning, I, th- I think, I think just let's look at job planning itself before we, we talk about team job planning. I think, I think a lot of trusts have struggled with it. It's a a tick box exercise. It's 400 individual job plans setting out each individual's capacity. And and there's not enough rigor, I think, in a lot of organizations to get this right, Um, which is is why I've been busy the last 10 years. I've been walking into organizations that have had a system, an electronic system, that haven't fully utilized it, where where there's real variation. Um, in job plans between consultants within the same team, technically with the same level of workload. Going into too much detail, you know, variations on, for example, administration, non-clinical allocations, different lengths of, of or durations for clinics and theatres when there's a set a set template, and and you and you look at it and you and you, you realise that really the, the job plans aren't really saying anything, and 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 the exercises are never completed. And, and if they're not, the consultants don't see it as a, as a priority. Mm. And, and it, it goes lower down the list of priorities to the point where it's not actually being done from one year to the next. Mm. And I think that, 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 is a, that is a problem. So let me challenge that. Why, why isn't it a tick block box exercise? Because we, we provide systems and obviously ours is you know, a software approach and we help people complete the job plans. That necessarily, doesn't necessarily translate into the cultural attitude that they're going to get them all done. And I have to confess, I have some cynicism about it myself. You know, Even though we provide those systems, it does seem a little bit tick boxy if you you could have 100% compliance. Everyone could put their job plans in, but 
if no one actually looks at them or uses that data in any way, or it, if it doesn't shape the pattern of their work, then what's what's the point? So what does a good job planning system look like? I don't mean technically like a software system, but what how, how does it benefit an organization once once they've got all the job plans in place? Yeah, I, I think it, 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 it's, it's planning. It, it's, it's there in the title. And, 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 and I think what, what organizations need to do is understand how many patients they need to treat in the different environments. So you'll have minor procedures, diagnostics, clinics, and theaters effectively. Plus you'll have um, ward-based cover and, and out-of-hours emergency cover. And, 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 and you need to understand how many patients you could probably going to need to see in any given year. And, and you'll, you'll know how long those activities take. So in a clinic, you'll know how much time you allocate for a new patient or a follow-up patient. And, and once, once you build that up, you've got a sense of how much time you need per annum per week to deliver the service. And, and once, once you've got that level of sort of detail, you're then able to build individual job plans and sort of collectively though as well, look at the collective picture and, and assess how much capacity you've got. And nine times out of 10, there'll be a gap. Okay. And at the moment that gap's being plugged by additional lists that might be uh, paid to the, to the current workforce at a premium rate or the work's going out to agency uh, where the rate can be even higher, you know, hundred pounds an hour plus. Uh, and, and what you've effectively not got is an alignment between your demand model and your, and your capacity, you know, to be able to deliver the service sustainably. And, and, and unless you do that planning, you're never going to get your workforce in the right place. And it's going to be costing the NHS millions and millions of pounds in reality. You know, I was with one trust where the contingent bill for the consultant workforce was seven million pounds a year. Wow. You could buy 70 consultants with that in theory. Yeah. And they probably only need 30 to have a sustainable model because the contingent costs are typically two, two and a half times more than the, you know, the contracted pay rate under the, the consultant contract. So it's cost effective and you, you're demonstrating that you've got the workforce available to deliver um, the workload. And, and it's evidence-based, statistical it's it's reasonably precise albeit it's a plan but it will give you some a level of precision and that talks to doctors when when i explain to them that job planning isn't a tick box exercise this is about a sort of really quite sophisticated workforce planning process and it talks their language they understand what they need to deliver they've got the, the numbers and then they understand how that's delivered safely and effectively and what resources we need to deliver it effectively. That, that sort of the light bulb comes on for them then, I think, in terms of what, what job planning is really about. And I think if you can articulate it like that, they, they start coming to you and they're, they're interested in it. They realize what, what the inputs are and what the outputs are and how that's going to support them in, in terms of getting to a sort of a, a sustainable position. I'm, I'm doing some team job planning work at the moment with a, with a trust and they, they know that they're short staffed. They want to put a business case into the exec for an additional consultant, but the team job planning process is going to give them the evidence that's mm. going to sort of almost be irrefutable really that will support 
their ability to convert a business case and get it signed off by the executive team. And that's using SAD's team job planning app as a pilot, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or just we get that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I, th- I just think that I mean, I don't know many trusts that are doing this properly. I, th- I think if they are, then you know, they, I may not know about them because they don't need me to come in and, and help them and support them. But certainly, NHS England and Improvement—they've you know they've got levels of attainment on on mm. job planning, um, ranging from zero to four. And and that they have they have sort of surveyed the the, the trusts across the across uh, England and Wales and um, I think as, as as far as I'm aware there aren't any that are, are getting above level two. You know, mm. Level two just covers off capacity planning and some evidence of rostering. Mm. And then level three uh, incorporates sort of demand modelling, team job planning, uh, and as far as I know, there aren't any trusts that at the moment that are that are. Submitted a report to confirm that they're at that that that, that level. Yeah. Well, until very recently, I mean, we're, our team job planning applications in pilot. Um, I don't think the software systems have been there to do it even. And and you've been doing team job planning essentially on sort of Excel spreadsheets and um, so testing and improving the process. And uh, we've been working with you to to basically turn that into a digital product the need to have both match capacity and demand and the team job planning and how team job planning sort of fits into that concept of making sure you work out what demand you have on the service and therefore job plans actually become job plans because uh, you're planning your capacity to meet meet those demands. But up up until recently, it seems that there's very few trusts that are actually doing that next step. So I guess it does feel a bit tick boxy until you make that next leap forward and start actually looking at the demand on the service as well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It is. I, I, I think if, if you, if you get the team job plan in the right place and then you go through the, the, the capacity planning bit, I think, I think job planning as a concept will, it'll, it'll, be, it'll become a live fertile sort of tool to, to resolve some of the big issues that the NHS has currently got. I've already talked about sort of contingent costs, either internal or, or external, which I wish I had a number on it, but I, I should imagine it's, it's astronomical. But it also enables trust to start to think about recruitment strategy, how they deliver services. And, so, and sometimes the, the, the work that they're currently doing doesn't need to be delivered by a consultant, of course. You know, there's, there's um, you know, we've got advanced nurse practitioners, nurse consultants in the mix. But if you know what the size of the gap is, you can start to think about how you're going to bridge that gap and what type of practitioner you're going to put in place to, to, to make it happen. I mean, I mean, pre-COVID we had backlogs and, and the backlog has grown yeah. exponentially over the last 10, 12 years and over clearly of the last 24 months, even significantly more so. And I think this is another reason why workforce planning is really, really pivotal. Um, and and, and a, a lot of organisations at the moment are, well, they've already produced a, an elective recovery plan to manage the, the elective workload. But they're doing that in isolation of the, sort of the workforce demands that they need, that they need now, that they need next year, they need the following year. 
taking into account the fact that some people will leave the service, there are people that are due to retire. Um, so, you know, you need to weave everything in to understand how you're going to get to a level of sustainability from a workforce perspective, but also how, how you're going to be able to reduce that backlog over the next one, two, three years. This is why this is so important. I think even without COVID, it was important, but COVID has added another, what, 4 million uh, people onto the waiting lists. It's almost tripled what we had pre-COVID. We, we, need, to, we need to resolve that going forward. It, it's interesting. I think there'll always be a gap, is my personal view, until, uh, until, until we provide sufficient resource into the, into the wider system. Mm. I've always felt that we, we need we need to increase medical school places. We we need to increase them significantly. It's going to cost money, mm. um, but but we need to be creating our own uh, doctors for the future. Well, go Kent Medical School. Yeah, well, we, uh, we've them. got a new medical school open here on Kent Uni campus and Kent and Canterbury Christchurch as well. It's a joint yeah. thing. I don't know if you've seen it, but. We've been supporting it. It's our main like charity for the companies to help promote that They're into the second year. It's great, right. and, they, and they've had like a fresh start at working out. There's we did another podcast with the founding dean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's, there's a real need. I mean, you know, I think they were, they, were, they were they were looking at the number of new registrations through the General Medical Council, and over sixty percent are from overseas doctors. That we're effectively taking from other health care systems mm. who probably need it more more than we do mm. despite mm. what the problems that we've got in the in the uk and really we, we do need to grow our own uh, and um and the only way that you can do that is actually it'd be a lot it'd be a long-term plan but if you create six thousand medical student places tomorrow there'll be consultants in what 15 years time yeah, uh, but but they'll also provide the additional resource that you need at junior doctor level because there are gaps on junior doctor rotors across the UK. Agencies are, are are doing quite well out of it, but it's adding significant pressure to the day to day workload of, of of junior doctors because agencies aren't able to plug every gap, and it's not just creating pressure for the junior doctors; it's creating issues for the quality of patient care as well. Mm. So we, we need to grow our own. Maybe in 15 years' time, we might have a sustainable workforce that can cover off everything at junior level, middle grade, and at senior level. Um, and demands on hospital care are increasing as well. Not exponentially, but there's been a year-on-year year increase. The population is getting older. And, and really, we, we haven't got the workforce available to us, I think, at the moment to deliver this in a safe and effective way. So t- team job planning and, and capacity planning is part of that equation. Yeah, to work out what the gap is in yeah. recruitment and, yeah. and where to recruit as well. Yeah. I guess where, what areas need. And that might drive funding decisions going forward. So I think if every organisation had a, a clear picture for every specialty in terms of what, what the demand is and what the capacity is and what the demand is likely to look like next year, the year after and beyond, that that should drive sort of central decisions about what we need as a workforce to to deliver a sort of first class health service. So the development of this team job planning app, you've been working with our CTO Barbara 
mm-hmm. and our project manager, Charlotte. Could you just tell us a little bit about that and how you're iterating through it and what that's been like? It's been really good. I mean, I've, I've, not, I've not sat down in a room with, with, with coders before. Right. Clearly, I, I, I very much come at it from an operational perspective. And I suppose it was really, really interesting to try and, I mean, I was keen for them to understand why we're doing this and what it means and what every element of the system means. So what is outpatient demand? What is outpatient scheduling? What does outpatient capacity look like? Well, often I'd be giving them examples of how specialties function, what happens, and they go, what's that? So there was a lot of that going on, but I think it's really good for the coders to understand that. So they're not Mm. just dealing with the sort of technicalities of Mm -hmm. converting my sort of vision to a, into a piece of software. It started with the spreadsheet, really. That was sort of the, 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 the workbook that I'd produced that I'd been using with a number of trusts pre-COVID. Um, it was about converting that into a sort of a, a user-friendly interface that, that managers and clinical leads can, can use to, to build a demand model for their particular uh, clinical specialty. Um, and we've we've been at it since I don't know when we started. Actually, it was it probably about October last year? Um, and, and we worked we worked at, we worked at pace. Um, but you know, clearly I had other things to to get on with each week, as did Barbara. And um, you know, so we'd we'd meet meet weekly. There'd be a bit of work to be done in in between meetings. Um, and, and you know, we've we've got a prototype ready now that. Uh, certainly covers off all of the inputs that need to go in. And it doesn't just cover the clinical work, it covers the non-clinical as well. So all of the sort of supporting professional activities, additional roles people may have. And what what, what, it, what, it, what, it, what it will do is it will set out in detail with clarity what, what the tariffs will be for different things. So administration, SPA, so that you can ensure through the job planning process that you've got consistency. They're actually the allocations that come out of individual job plans are aligned to the team plan. And we've completed the prototype. I think we're about 60% of the way through the outputs part. And, and we're, we're testing it at the moment with a, with a trust in the Southeast with um, three specialties, one surgical, one medical. Um, and we're also looking at the emergency department as well just to see how it works, assess whether it's user-friendly and the interfaces are good and the outputs are mm. what the, the managers would, would hope for through a team job planning system. Yeah, how's that been received, is it? Yeah, I think so. Yes, I'm joking, sorry. <laughs> Leading the witness. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will clarify. Or I, I think nobody's done team job planning before. And, 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 there's, there's, there's more work required to pull together the team job plan than there is to actually get the individual plans, the, the job plans of the capacity bit in, in the right shape. Uh, one of the departments is a, uro- a urology department. And that, the first thing I did was actually look at the capacity plans and, and carry out a diagnostic on those plans. And it was clear that even, even just the, the clinical language was really generic. So it was either a uh, a general clinic or a one-stop clinic, or it was a day case theatre list, or it was a inpatient theatre list. That's all they had in the plans. Mm-hmm. They also provide um, a urology of the week service where a consultant on a one in nine rotation 
covers off all the emergency work and picks up any referrals that come in from general practice or through ED. And, and the job plans didn't reflect that at all in, in the right way. But what I, what I know about urology is that they, they do minor procedures. Some of the sessions are diagnostic. So like ultrasound, urodynamics, biopsies to see whether people have got cancers. And there was none of that in the job plans at all. The clinics, they probably have 10 different clinics from general clinics, breaking bad news, pediatric clinics, one stop for prostate, for hematuria. And the team job planning exercise was actually to tease all of that out and say, well, for each of those clinics, how many patients do we need to see? Really breaking it down into, into, into mm. a lot of detail. And I think that's, it's not become a challenge for them, but I think, I think it's, it's a lot more work than they would probably have anticipated. But we need to do this to break the back of the fact that we haven't got team job planning in place in most organizations. So the first time you do it, you really need to go at it and dedicate the time that's necessary to, to formulate the, the plan. Now I, I've, I've built the plan. I've met with them and discussed the way that the service runs. They've sent me rosters, operational rosters, so I can see what's happening day to day, who's doing what. So I've been able to formulate the, the team job plan in the system based on conversations I've been having with the, with, with the, the general manager. We only, we only meet for once a week for an hour, and then I go off and probably spend 15 hours pulling something together that starts to, to, to mean something to them. And I think, I think by next week we'll, we'll have the full demand data set into the, into the prototype system. And then I'll be able to produce the outputs as well for, for, mm. for the uh, department. Well, the, the, the team job planning system that we're developing will set out demand, but it also sets out uh, the scheduling that, is in currently in place. So it will show you which consultants doing which activity on which day and how many patients are sort of templated or scheduled to go through that session. So what we'll be able to do is assess the demand model against what's currently being scheduled and establish mm. the gap. And we'll be able to report on that. But the, the next phase, once that team job plan has been effectively signed off by the clinical team. So once we've once we've formulated it, drafted it, shared it, taken comments, maybe tweaked it here or there, we'll be able to establish um, what the gap is between demand and scheduling. And then we'll take the department through the capacity planning part. Yeah. Making sure that the acute model, the duty urologist model is accurately reflected across the team. It reflects a 52-week delivery model. Uh, putting in the capacity for each individual for their procedures, diagnostics, theatres and outpatients. And then we'll be able to match that against the demand model and see where the gap is. And before the job plans are formally signed off, determine whether we can I don't know, reduce the capacity in one area and increase it in another area to try and get to a point where we've got reasonable alignment between capacity and demand. Now, I know they need probably one additional consultant, maybe two. So I don't expect there to be absolute alignment between capacity and demand, but at least we'll know what the gap is and we'll know how many clinics a year 
they need extra how many theatre lists they need a year extra and that will help them formulate a job description for a new consultant and support the business planning process so so it, it is it's going well but I, I i think i think at first the, the clinical team was a bit or the manager was a bit overwhelmed mm. It's a big, big cultural change and it's a lot of demand on their time. And I suppose the, the benefits of it are quite delayed. You know, the actual once once that informs decision and you get some insight from it and then acting upon that insight is yeah. quite a long time period, isn't it? To recruit a person, to change job plans, to have people working in a different area than they were before because there's more demand over here. Is all They get the benefits, but the benefits are are a little way down. Yeah, they're not uh, immediate. Down the road. And, uh, just yeah. humans aren't great at delayed gratification, are they? No, no. Well, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, of course. I mean, I get, I, get, I get it. But I mean, I mean, next year, this is a, it's an annual process, but next year they're not going to start with a, a fresh slate. They're just going to copy over last year's team job plan, have a look at it, look at trends on the numbers of patients. Um any in-year changes to scheduling that have happened, and it'll be an organic process. And, and year on year, you'll 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 chip away and make improvements to the point where you get to a sustainable uh, level of delivery. Yeah. But yeah, the, the first time you tackle team job planning, there's 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 quite a bit of work to to, to be done. Um, I estimate for this urology team, I've I've already put in sixty hours of work over the last couple of months. The manager. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing most of the the running with this, but the manager's putting in at least you know two or three hours a week, mm. probably over a ten week period. It, it, it does it does require. It does pay for itself though. That's the thing. Is it? Yeah. yeah. It's a, yeah. you know sixty hours of your work. I'm sure it's you know a, it's going to be a significant cost, but not compared to the hundreds and hundreds of hours of doctor's time that's going to yeah. that's going to impact. Yeah. On that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, they've got contingent costs at the moment, so they are putting out additional work to the current consultant workforce. I don't think they're bringing any any agency doctors in, but um, that that costs one. It costs money. Two, it takes time for the manager to chase and harry the the consultant team and say look can somebody do this session on thursday and mm. and then and then there's the whole processing of that for payment. If you have a sustainable workforce with a, a scheduling model that covers everything off apart from unforeseen absence, somebody who rings in sick, you, that, that you, you're going to save time and money in the in the medium to long term as well. Yeah, I, I, for me, the benefits are there, and and it will pay off eventually. Um, I, I think I think NHSEI are, 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 are going to expect us to report on this and incrementally make progress towards level three or level four, mm. you know, the levels of attainment. I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's, if CQC inspections now start to say, look, what have you got in terms of demand modeling? What's your capacity? Mm. What's the gap? Why is your run rate on contingent pay so high? How can you reduce that? Um, I think all of these things are now going to be sort of core requirements for, for trusts to, to de- deliver on. I think even nationally, the, you know, I think the, the government, the health minister, you know, he's even he's even saying that there's enough money in the system. It's it's more about the management process, mm. and part of that includes HR 
management, ensuring you've got the right staff in the right place at the right time. You know, I, 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 I think the, the sort of the, the, what's the, the inspection on this or the sort of the, the governance on this is going to tighten, I think. And I think organizations are going to have to move in this direction. Those that do, and some of the early adopters, one, one, they'll have the right level of resource. Two, their patients have been um, seen quickly and effectively. They have limited backlog. Uh, it's cost effective. Their contingent pay bill is next to zero. The quality of patient care is is at the optimal sort of level. So the, the, the really the really important things that happen need to happen. Mm. And um, passionate about this, I think. I think given that the consultants are the sort of the leaders of the the clinical work you know, they drive the, the 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 service forward the decisions that they make are, are, are pivotal to the patient but also pivotal in terms of what happens for the rest of the team from one day to the next and if we can't get the workforce planning right for the for the senior workforce then we're, we're struggling i think what, what i've liked about this is that um we haven't just developed the system and then sort of delivered it to the market and gone, there you go. It has been this really iterative approach. And as you say, you know, you go in, you actually realize that this is this quite sort of cultural changes that need to go ahead along, along with the technical development. You need to, to explain the reasoning behind it, get people bought into the process, uh, find where perhaps that system doesn't actually match with what needs to be performed. And it's been it's been very iterative, hasn't it? Um, yeah. But what, one of the striking things for me is that it's been probably one of our first products at Saad, where I think we've had to consider it more as a managed service. So you're not you're not just buying a license and then you know a doctor does an appraisal on the system or does a rostering or or, or even just their individual job plan and does it on the system and goes away. It's a system that. You have to come in and have a Brian. It is a Brian plus system problem. Um, you need you need that understanding of the process and the tools and system to go with it and and deliver it as a package. And I think it's probably one of our first things where we it's sort of like a very managed managed service software plus Brian. Yeah, and um, I, I think trust that once this is launched and um, and trust start to procure it, they're go- they're going to need some implementation support. Yeah, and I need a better name than Software Plus Brian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I kind of like it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Software Plus Brian to the power of six. I don't know. Yeah, because <laughs> there's there's a lot of places that are going to need this. Uh, that's the thing. Is uh... yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and a lot of organisations do have workforce planning specialists embedded within the HR function that are probably going to enjoy getting the their hands dirty with a system like this compared to tracking sickness absence and producing beautiful graphs for the execs at the the monthly board meeting. You know, I think this is workforce plan. This is workforce planning in its truest sense. And I think quite a few mm. of the sort of workforce planners within trusts working alongside medical HR practitioners um, will we'll, we'll be keen to get their hands dirty. But, you know, I, th- I think clinical teams are going to be really interested in this. I think they, I think they're crying out for a sophisticated way of understanding the capacity demand 
um, conundrum, as it were. It fits quite neatly as well with uh, another product we developed, which was the Murfin Plus stuff. I think Barbara took you through that. Have you seen the Murfin Plus thing? Well, it links up the actual clinical EPR system, so take the patient record system and look at the outcomes and actually see, you know, you expect a doctor in such a position to see X amount of patients per day, and this is how much direct clinical care they're delivering, and this is how many patients actually went through that clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's not like a stick to beat people over the head with um the idea is to sort of see, or are those outcomes being recorded correctly on the EPR system? Why is there a mismatch between these things? Is it because they're actually recorded by someone else in a team? And so, it it's another it's another way to sort of um, have a, have another input. So you've got the inputs in terms of uh, trying to work out what the demand is on the service, but this is actual real data about what was delivered. And yeah what happened on the ward so i think i think you and uh phil briefly showed me that mm. maybe 12 months ago I've not, I've not looked at it since but job planning team job planning individual job planning that's the planning bit yeah the the, the next bit is is once you've got that agreed is is effectively you know agreed job plans the next step for me is operationalizing that and and having a a rostering system. Yeah, day to day operationally shows what 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 people are doing. Um, fr- from that quarterly, six monthly, you'll be able to see how many of each individuals have delivered. But you then, of course, should have sort of the in session delivery as well, the productivity that goes through the session. And I'd expect in, mo- in most cases in the clinical team for that to be fairly consistent across the consultant workforce. Mm. But, the, but there might be a particular session where the patients may be more, be more challenging. They may have comorbidities and they may not be seeing as many patients through that session because of the particular challenges of the patient. So it doesn't always equalize, but yeah, I, think, I think trust should be tracking that and 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 um and making making sure that they're as productive as as, as possible. It's a massive investment. A consultant typically on a tempia contract costs one hundred twenty five thousand pounds a year. And over a twenty five year career, you can, you can do the math. And that doesn't even include the sort of full on costs, does it? I mean, I've heard estimates of a consultant sort of two fifty k when you consider, I don't know, buildings, equipment, training, yeah, everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just talking about salaried costs, not overheads yeah. and the, the 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 things that they use to support the delivery of of patient care. But it's it's a huge investment, and trusts want assurance that they're, they're getting delivery. I think, in my experience, in any case, you're probably ninety nine percent of consultants are are delivering at full full tilt, and uh, at the very thin end of the wedge, there, there are people that aren't delivering. Uh, at the same level as their as their colleagues and um, HR practitioners, sometimes there are underlying reasons mm. for that that sh- should be managed in, in in some way. But yeah, you know, I, I think even if people are working at ninety nine percent productivity levels, I I personally don't think there's sufficient resource within the system in any case to deliver on the demand. Yep. Um, which, as I said earlier, is is incrementally increasing year on year mm. it's important to know that though that's the thing is until you've got a system you you know you're just doing it blind yeah this is the fear through the fog 
<laughs> not knowing there's yeah. bad things come in and you know but hopefully with a system like this at least you know what you're dealing with at least yeah, you know what yeah. the gap is and what yeah and and hopefully that spurs people into action to to do things like recruit more at the, at the bottom end and, and invest long term for the future yeah. Um, the other thing is we built the system with, uh, agnostic of the individual job planning system. So it works with other software suppliers, same with the rostering side of things. I mean, SAD does provide individual job planning for all staff groups and a rostering system for all staff groups. So I, I, I feel we're in a good position to do that link up between, as you say, the whole thing uh, to, to actually look at what was rostered um, but we've, we've built it to be agnostic because we recognize that there's, there's a big player out there who's got a lot of the job planning <laughs> systems in place, um, as do we, but, um, it, it's agnostic. We don't, we don't mind who you, uh, who you bought your job planning system off. Obviously yeah. you should transfer to SAR eventually. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it was always my vision that you, 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 you can you can deliver the team job planning system in the SARD system, but at some point you, you're going to need to map that against the capacity plans. But I think I think our system or the SARD system will have um, the functionality for you to upload capacity data from other job planning systems to carry out that that capacity and demand analysis if necessary. Yeah, there needs to be some interoperability between what we're doing and, and the the other systems. So there, there shouldn't be any reason why, if you've got a job planning system provided by another supplier, that you could still procure and utilize our team job planning system and carry out the capacity demand analysis later down the line. So there, there will be that functionality, I think, to be able to do that if you know if, if trusts decide to have a, a different team job planning system to the capacity planning system. Mm. So it does play nicely with others. I'm going to change our strap line. Plays nicely with others. <laughs> <laughs> we get quite personal sometimes on our, on our podcast. We go into like, not sorry, not personal, personal, but just where you, your origin story and things like that and your music uh-huh. and music is a passion. Yeah, it is. Yeah, do you want me to talk a bit about that? I'm quite happy to talk about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. sort of music is it? I'm, I'm all right. I don't know how. <laughs> this. Are you your your dad was was he the Brian Jones saxophonist? Is that right? You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's not quite world famous, but he's he's known to people that know a bit yeah. about music. Well, the thing is that our sales lady uh, Jan is. Uh, a saxophonist and I think she when she spoke to you I think she put the initial call into you and she was like you don't happen to be no Brian Jones saxophonist and it's mm-hmm. like yeah it's my dad yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think she went wow yeah yeah, but, but, yeah but, but, but you're I'm a gonna... good musician in your own right um no 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 oh, bang I was in a band when I was 17, mm. um, they were a goth band called the Winter Brides. Amazing. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, we came back from holiday when I was 16 and our house had been burgled and anything that was techie had been taken. My limited record collection at that point 
which was lots of sort of synthesizer and neuromantic stuff that had all gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got the insurance money. Uh, and my mum gave me £200 and I went out and bought um, a Korg MS-20 monophonic synthesizer, um, which now if you try and get them on, on eBay or whatever, they probably they cost about, I don't know, about £6,000. Mm. I wish I'd have kept it, to be yeah. honest with you. But, yeah. <laughs> but I, I didn't. Yeah, and I was in a band briefly. To be honest, I, I it had a patch board on it that most modern synthesizers now you 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 click a, a number and it gives you a sound. You know, sixty seven gives you a horn sound or whatever. Um, this 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 particular piece of kit was just lots of jack inputs and a flow diagram, and you had to just stick your cables in, throw the spaghetti over the back, and hope mm-hmm. for hope for a sound. <laughs> The manual, but I wasn't going to read the manual. You know, I was only sixteen, and 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 I, I basically I just created white noise every time, um, and and it was really frustrating, not just for me, but for the other band members. And in in the end, I think they just basically ditched me and said, "Look, we're going off," <laughs> which was fine. We we were still friends. I went yeah. to the rehearsals. I went to the gigs. Yeah, my I I, I think uh, I mean they say that sort of the ability to play music skips a generation. Mm-hmm. My dad is clearly a highly skilled sax player. My, my son um, is doing really well with his drums and uh, he's got inbuilt musicality according to his tutor. I've got a good ear for music, but playing it, it no, no, not, 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 not possible. I'm afraid. Although, although yeah, I, I did. I made a, re, I made a film recently. I started making films in lockdown. I was going to do a series of them and they were going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the first ever gigs that I went to. Oh, wow. Right. Um, so, so I made, I made a film. It took me, I don't know. It took me about eight, eight to nine weeks to, to pull it together pulled out videos, films, photographs, used the Ken Burns technique to zoom in and zoom out, did the commentary. And at the end of the film, at the closing credits, there's a cover version of the of the band in question. And I created that cover version using GarageBand on my oh, cool. MacBook. And uh, with this microphone, did the vocal on it. Mm. And um, But that was quite easy. That was just playing around in GarageBand and just trying to work it out and get it structured in the right, in the right way. And I put that up on YouTube about what, six months ago. And I've probably had about 1600 views and which is, which is, which is good for yeah. a man of my yeah. age. <laughs> please, please send us that. I want to hear so, it. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's good. And, 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 it, and it does make reference to the first gigs I went to with my, with my mum and my dad, and my dad's involvement in music. He was, um, he was in a Merseybeat band, The Undertakers. So he was on the same bill as The Beatles, played The Cavern, went to Hamburg and played there at the Star Club and was resident there for three months. And um, so he was part of that scene, basically. And, th- and then after, after that ended, in fact, the singer of the band uh, released the first album on Apple Records when that was created by The Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, Jackie Lomax. But Dad carried on playing. And that's all he's done. He's not, not, never had a proper job. So he worked with Wings in, in the mid-70s. Then he had a, a couple of appearances on Opportunity Knocks, which were pretty embarrassing. Um, and, and, and then he worked with, uh, with all sorts of people, Dion Warwick, Beautiful South, did loads of session work. And, and The Undertakers are now still al- alive and kicking, so, well, at least as a band, or 
three original members, two original members have, have passed away, but you know, they, they still, they still play in the Northwest uh, with a new lineup. My dad sort of being the sort of the, the lead really. And that's where my love of music came from. Mm. He was taking, he was taking me get to gigs when I was two. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's never, never gone away. No. Um, never will. I'm just looking forward to handing over the vinyl to my son. Cause it's yeah. taking up too much space. I can't wait to just say, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Do, do what, whatever with it, you know, look after it. Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I am, I am halfway through making a second one, but I, I need another lockdown to finish it off. I think. <laughs> yeah. You sound very Fortune. busy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, hopefully this is the start of a beautiful marriage of your workforce, uh, under, deep understanding and our software team. I feel like you and Barbara seem to work brilliantly together. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a joy to watch sort of two of you yeah, on the sessions I've sat in on. Like it's been nice to see you working together and, oh, it does this and that does that. And um, I, I always love that. It's something I really enjoyed running this company is um, just seeing software engineers working with the operational need and it actually mm-hmm. be really connected uh, yeah. in a way rather than you know oh here's the features we need and then you just ship it all out to a software engineer over there somewhere and they they build it and they come back in six months time with something that doesn't work <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's that not short, the right that way short, that short loop between the actual operational need and the software developer and you know you've been you've been a part of that and it's been great to see that that dance that goes mm-hmm. on there you go bring it back to music but that dance between you know, the, the two of you, uh, it's great. It's great fun. And uh, it's been really enjoyable working with you on it. Yeah. No, it's been great from my perspective. It's rewarding. Like, I can't wait for us to do the road shows and show organizations show what, what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It is really cool. It's really, really cool. And I think it will have a big impact on the productivity of hospitals and, and ultimately uh, improve patient care, which is what yeah. it should all be about, right? Yeah, absolutely. If there's one thing our listeners should know, what would that be? I, th- I think what I think once I once I got to the point where I felt confident with 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 the people I was working with or for doctors, effectively clinical managers, we sort of got to the point where I, I used to say, "I'm, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to give you what you need, not what you want." Mm. Um, and I think there is a sort of really sort of important distinction between the two. And I always sort of grew up in my career with what I've perceived as is doctors just demanding. I want this. I want this. I want, I don't want that. And and it, and it was quite frustrating, I think early on in my career. But, um, I think once, once I started to understand how they tick, what they actually need, I was able to sort of be more proactive, I think, mm-hmm. and, and not be one step ahead, but think about, you know, what, 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 what do these guys actually need? I think just to sort of turn it around full circle, I think, I think that what we're doing with, with, with this piece of kit is, is it's exactly sort of aligned to that principle. Mm. And I think it's about what doctors need. It's about what patients need and not, not necessarily about what individual clinicians want, where they're all banging the, their individual drums. You know, this is about bringing it together and creating, I think, a, a sort of more sort of cohesive approach to how we, uh, support the delivery of healthcare. So you might not always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you might get what you need. 
Indeed. Yeah, they they they, they, they played they they played at Anfield, but I was and I I did want to go, but it was the day after I got back from holiday and. Mm. The idea of driving over to Liverpool from here, it's not that far, but yeah, I decided to give it a miss. But yeah, you can't always get what you want. Like <laughs> That's great. Thank you. That was very good. Hide it back up to the music. Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> Why not? Well, right. thanks, Brian. I hope that wasn't too painful. No, it was all right. It was good. Only the bit where I said, how's it been received, Brian? And you went, all right. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, say yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. No, no, it's funny. I'm, I'm only joking. I would actually leave that in. I, I, just something cl- about the Saad brand yeah. is like, uh, I like, I like to feel that we're authentic about what we do. And if you turn around and say, how is it? Then, uh, then someone goes, well, actually it's, uh, it's culturally difficult. Yeah. It's yeah. Fine. And that's honest. And people, mm-hmm. and, it, and then people realize that. And then when you do tell them the truth, they believe you. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I, I mean, I mean it's, it's also the, Typical sort of scouse understatement. Mm. We, we if we if we like something, we say, "Oh, that, it's all right." That and so we mm. go, well, "Only only all right." And again, yeah. no, it's all of it is right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, like, <laughs> it's that sort of yeah. People who know me understand that, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, th- I think we do need to be realistic about about the, the the challenge of team job planning. It's not we're helping them, but it's it's not. Um, you're not going to be able to do it uh, on the back of a cigarette packet. You've got to devote some time and energy to it to get it right. Thanks, Brian. It was really good. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Brian's ambitions for not only team job planning, but his aim to help create better workforce management for the NHS. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week. Sardisms.